Follow along with me, if you would, as I read to you 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse uh, 13 and work our way down to 511. Uh, We're going to take a 40,000-foot view of this passage. We cannot do it justice in one sermon today, but I don't think uh, that's necessarily the goal. Paul here to the church in Thessalonica says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... uh, (laughs) Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I doubt that many of us got ready this morning and either tuned in online or came to the building to be gathered as the church today with the idea of being inconsequential. Most of us don't wake up and look in the mirror and go, man, I just dream of really being insignificant today. Most of us want to be, and I think rightly so, of value and benefit to others. And as a church, we want to be of spiritual value and spiritual benefit to one another. But often we don't know how. Man, I really would love to, uh, to see the people around me thriving and flourishing in their relationships with God and one another, but, but I'm not exactly sure how to make that happen. And so what we end up often doing is... Uh, we leave the ministry to the professionals. This is what we do in our daily lives outside of the church. When, when we can't do something for ourselves, we hire somebody to do it. Maybe it's uh, uh, your car needs repaired and you don't have the skill to repair your car and so you employ someone who does. Or your house needs fixed, updated, remodeled, roofed, repaired in some way, you hire a contractor. Uh, doctors, get, we pay them to do what we cannot do, lawyers as well. Most of us uh, pay chefs 
to prepare food that we're to a level of either quality or expediency that we are unable to provide for ourselves. When it comes to the church, this is not God's design. His design is not that we would leave the ministry to the professionals. Similarly, I think most of us would say we want to see the church grow. But how do we do that? If we're cool enough, organized enough, nice enough, if we have a good enough preacher or the right programs, then the church will grow. And so we hire the professionals to do the work for us. Uh, But again, this is not God's design for the church. Neither of these desires is bad. In fact, both of these desires are, are good. But how do we be spiritually helpful to others? And how does a church grow? I think these, uh, the answers to these two questions are remarkably similar. But in order to understand them, I think we have to understand what Scripture means by uh, church growth. And I think oftentimes what we mean by seeing the church grow and what Scripture means by seeing the church grow is not the same thing. Normally, when we speak of church growth, or if you were to get online and research uh, books on church growth, they would probably almost exclusively focus on how you can get more people to attend your church. But that is not what Scripture speaks of when it speaks of church growth. It speaks of individual members of the body growing in their relationship to God and ministry to others. I think the two are often connected because maturing believers are evangelizing believers. Maturing believers are believers who, who understand they've never met a mere mortal. C.S. Lewis reminded us of that. Nobody you ever have met is, is a mere mortal. Every single person you have ever met, shook hands with, got an order uh, uh, from the drive through window, or yelled at when their service was not good enough, is an eternal soul with an eternal destiny. And mature believers are believers who understand that and who articulate the gospel. And, and, and a church that is filled with maturing believers who share the gospel is usually a church that is growing in the number of people who attend. This is an important way to understand church growth because it's kingdom growth. You can grow a church by stealing sheep from other churches, asking them who go to another evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church to come here. And though your church might grow, the kingdom does not. But when we go out and we share the gospel with people and people believe and trust in Jesus Christ and then they begin coming to our church, not only does the church grow, but the the kingdom grows as well. So again, how do we do this? Well, I think it's a little bit counterintuitive. Uh, You can keep a finger in uh, 1 Thessalonians here, but turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to look at two verses here, and Paul gives us, uh, really God through the agency of Paul, gives us an insight into what church growth looks like. And we get this, um, 
You know, if you've, if you've been to my office, you've probably seen there's sentence diagramming on the whiteboard there, and I'm pretty passionate about sentence diagramming, and people have asked me, why do you sentence diagram? Well, Paul is the reason I sentence diagram, and here's why. So let's look at uh, chapter 4, verse 15. Uh, this is the responsibility of the church, that rather speaking the truth in love, that's what we do to one another, we speak the truth to one another in love, we, that is the body of believers, are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And now we get this new clause here, which could be a new sentence. From whom the whole body... Now, there's the subject of this sentence. It is the whole body. And then he gives us a description of the body. And really what he describes for us is how the body is to work together. But in all of this description we're about to read, he does not give us the verb of the subject. Body is the subject. He's talking about the body that is the church, but he does not yet tell us what the body does. And so he says that, that the whole body from Christ, when the body is, here it is, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Now let's stop there. Paul assumes that the body of Christ is joined and equipped. Now let's think about a body for a moment. Uh, maybe you are an organ donor, maybe not. Maybe you have decided that science can have your body. Maybe you have not. But, but let's imagine that you have agreed to let your body be used by science, and, and a scientist approaches you and says, we have an experiment that we would like to try before you die intrigued, you say, well, tell me more about this experience. And he says, what we would like to do is disassemble your body. We'd like to remove the brain and the heart and the kidneys and the lungs and the stomach and the skin so that we can have all of the parts of a functioning body working before us. We'd like to study them and how they work. And then don't worry when we're done, we'll put you back together. Who's signing up? A body does not function unless every member is connected. And I mean every member. What if we were to just remove your digestive tract for a week? Or your circulatory system? Or your nervous system? Paul is saying that a functioning body must not only be joined together, it must also be equipped. I think most of us here know the sad and hard and painful effects of when part of your body quits functioning correctly. I remember one time I went to the ER, I went to work, I was at a church in Tucson, within about an hour I was miserable, I went home, I said, uh, within about 30 minutes I told Jennifer, I have got to go to the ER. It took us about an hour to get uh, the kids lined out with somebody to watch them, so she took me to the ER. And in that about two and a half hour period, I was just unbelievably miserable. Uh, turns out I had pancreatitis. Uh, my gallbladder wasn't functioning properly, somehow a duct got plugged, which resulted in pancreatitis, and let me tell you, it was miserable. 
But when part of our body is not equipped to function right, something's wrong with it, the whole body experiences the pain of that. And so we see here that as he begins to describe the body, two assumptions that Paul has of the church is that it is connected and it is functioning. I think this begs the question, are you connected to the body of Christ? I think six months ago, I probably would have asked the question, where are you connected to the body of Christ? But it seems to me like maybe now more than ever, because of everything that's going on around us, the body is more disconnected than ever. And long term, it is a spiritual death sentence. But the second question this begs is, where are you functioning properly? Where are you contributing to the health and growth and life of the body? Young adults, are are you expecting that church is a spectator sport, like going to the movies or a concert, or do you expect yourself to contribute to the life and health of the church? Parents, do you expect to be able to simply drop off your kids and have somebody else care for them? Seniors, do you view the church as, you know, maybe it's I've put in my time and money and now it's time for me to be served? Every member must not only be connected, every member must also be functioning. But then he goes on from there to continue this description. He says that the whole body being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when, the the description continues, when each part is working properly, now the description ends and we get the verb, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here is the basic sentence structure of this verse. The body makes the body grow. How does the body make the body grow? By being connected and functioning. By being connected and beneficial. You know what this means? Uh, This certainly does not mean that pastors have not harmed churches, but ultimately, pastors, they're just part of the body. The growth and health and life of the church, the responsibility for that is placed not upon her pastor, but upon her members. That's why Trinity is a church whose leadership is lay elders who are affirmed and accountable to the members of the church. This is not a professional pulpitism ministry where you pay your fee and you get a product. It is an organic body that must be connected and functioning properly. And every single one of us has been given a different function, just as every single part of your body has been given a different function. And here's what we tend to do. Well, I'm not like so-and-so, or I'm not gifted as well as that person, or what can I really contribute? Let me tell you, little things have big effects on the body. I'll be having surgery in in a week, and I might have uh, a toe amputated. not a big deal, middle toe, and uh, not, not doing all that much. In fact, it hasn't functioned. This will be my fourth surgery. It's nothing to be concerned about. However, let me tell you, when that toe isn't functioning and there's great pain, it affects my whole body. It affects everything. And, and so every part of the body has been given a role 
Every part is necessary, and while we don't have time to look there today, Paul is pretty clear in 1 Corinthians that, um, that it is the, the seemingly least important parts of the church that are most important. I'm here today as a testimony, please don't take this the wrong way, but I'm here today as a testimony that pastors are replaceable and finite. We don't, we don't, like Jesus Christ, have a ministry that endures forever. God calls us other places. He uses us in different contexts at different times, or we grow old and simply can't do the ministry that we did before. Someday, somebody will be standing in this pulpit behind me, and hopefully in 20 or 25 or 30 years, there will be lots of conversation about the failures and weaknesses of the ministry of Logan Mann, but of the greatness of Christ who has been faithful to this church. But the body grows when it is connected and functioning. But again, the question is, how do we do that? How do we do that for and with one another? Well, I think the answer is found in the word encourage. We must encourage one another. But what does that mean? What does it mean to encourage one another? I think in common usage today, encourage means to make one feel good. As in, I was feeling sad today, and so-and-so came along and encouraged me, and now I feel better. But that's not really what the word encourage means. It's certainly not what it means in our Bibles. It's not even what it means in the English dictionary. I looked it up. Here is what encourage means. Three definitions. To inspire with courage, spirit, or confidence. Or to stimulate by assistance or approval. And finally, to promote, to advance, or foster. So rather than I was sad and so and so encouraged me, the word encourage is more like I was afraid and so and so encouraged me too. I didn't know what to do, but my friend encouraged me to. We listened to this long sermon today, and in it, our pastor encouraged us too. Let me encourage you to encourage one another. It is, in fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5, and we'll turn back there now and give our attention to those verses, that, that we find the word encourage uh, connected with one another. This, in fact, this is the only two places, uh, though it, the idea of encouragement is all over the New Testament, this is the only two places where the word encourage is connected to one another. And, and in after Paul has taught us from verses 13 to 17, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then again, at the end of chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So I would like to look from these verses at two ways today that you can encourage one another. Or we might look at this as two ways of being of spiritual benefit to one another. Or we might even say two ways to promote church growth. Any of the ways of thinking of these would be helpful. Number one, the first way that we can be of, helpful, of help to each other in connected relationships for the growth of the body is to assure one another of the hope of their future. 
that the church in Thessalonica was confused about the return of Christ, about the rapture. What is the rapture? Well, we believe as taught in Scripture that Christ, having died for his church and been resurrected again and ascended into heaven, is and will one day return to earth to take those who belong to him to be with him for eternity. We call this the rapture. That is, that the dead will be resurrected, but the alive who are believers will be raptured, taken up, translated to heaven to be with God. And somehow or another, the, the Thessalonians, a faithful church, maybe the model church in the New Testament, um, they were under the impression that it's possible they missed it. Jesus came and we missed it. We didn't see his coming. He, he somehow forgot us or we forgot him or one way or another. And so Paul writes them and he says in verse 13, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Now, asleep here is merely a euphemism for dead. It's, it's in fact Paul's favorite language for dead. And I think the reason he likes to use the word dead is to, or asleep for dead is to emphasize the temporary nature of it. That, that when we die, that is a temporary reality. That whether we believe in Christ or not, our bodies will be resurrected one day. We will wake up from the dead. But I think also uh, he uses a sleep so that we might, there might be an urgency in our understanding. But he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. He means those who have died. So that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Notice he does not say not to grieve. He simply says we want you to have hope in it. And then we get these words, for since. This is, this is what we call a conditional clause. It is translated as since here because he's talking to a group of believers. But really the word is if. What he is saying is that, that we don't want you to be a... a worried. We don't want you to, be, to grieve as those who have no hope. Why not? Well, let's look down at verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, that is Jesus, he will descend from heaven, and with the cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. May that day come soon. But he says, don't be afraid, don't worry, have hope, because Jesus is coming back, and whether you've died or whether you're alive, at the time of his return, you will be taken up to be with him in heaven. Just because you are alive, Thessalonians, does not mean you've missed it. Alive or dead, no one will miss it. But how do we know that we are of those who will be taken up to be with the Lord in the air forever? That's what verse 14 is about. He says, for if or for since... If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The assurance of our future is conditional. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. How can something that's assured be conditional? 
Well, we can be assured of our future hope if we are not trusting in ourselves to get there. We must trust someone else. Uh, my wife would love to take a trip to Italy. And someday, hopefully, we might get to. But if we go to Italy, in order to arrive at our destination, we are going to have to get into an airplane. And it is not us and our own will or desire or power or strength that will get us to our destination. It will be the act of stepping inside of a vehicle that is equipped and capable to get us there. It doesn't matter how hard you believe you can flap your arms and fly to Italy. Until you step in the plane, you're not getting there. And that's kind of the point Paul is making here to us. If you believe that on your own merit, your own works, your own goodness, your own righteousness, your own not being that bad to get there, it's like flapping your wings and expecting to get to Italy. No amount of your own effort can lift you that high as to be in the presence of the Lord when he returns. Oh, but if you will trust him to get there, if you believe that he is Lord of all who came and lived a perfect and sinless life and died in our place that he might buy us back from what we deserved because of our sin, that he might redeem us, that he might, uh, that, that he might pay the penalty for our wrongdoing. Then three days later was resurrected, offering that he does have the power uh, to get us there. How can we know that Jesus is the right vehicle to get into, to have eternal life? It's because he lives. And when we, by faith, that is turning from our sins and turning towards Christ, trusting his goodness, not ours, trusting his death, not our goodness, we then, rather than flapping our arms aimlessly, step into Christ, we are placed in Christ, and he will bring us home to be with him forever in the air. No matter what happens now, no matter how hard life gets, no matter what difficulty or struggle there is, we can know that the future is certain. William Gurnall said this. He said, it's in Old English. He said, let thy hope of heaven master thy fear of death. For why shouldst you be afraid to die who hopest to live by dying. Look again at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. If you have trusted Christ, then the only thing death or rapture can do to you is deliver you to Jesus. It's the only thing death can do to us. But it's not always death that scares us, is it? Sometimes it's life that scares us. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes life is painful. Sometimes life seems unbearably difficult. But hope is powerful. 
Hope is incredibly powerful when we know what's coming. And if your view of heaven is clouds and harps, let's get together and talk. <laughs> because it's oh so much better than that. But the hope of the future sometimes gives us the ability to endure incredible things. I remember in 2004, we moved to Tucson. Uh, in October of that year um, was when we moved there. End of November, we bought a house, and we, um, we closed on the house sometime in December. It was right before Christmas, and Jennifer and I had this great hope of our first family Christmas in our own home, not living in an apartment. And, and we really wanted to do whatever it took to be, have the home ready and moved in. We, we bought the home from some people who uh, must have chain-smoked inside of it, and we had an asthmatic son, and so we had some work to do. And I remember there was a massive amount of priming and painting. I think we picked nine colors to go in the house between trim and ceiling and primer and walls and various rooms. And so uh, there was one day I, I took Thursday off. Uh, I... Um, I got done with youth group on Wednesday night. I went home on Wednesday night. I was a youth pastor then, and I started painting. And I didn't sleep Thursday, Wednesday night. I painted all night. Then I painted all day Thursday. Then all night Thursday night. Then all day Friday. Then all night Friday night. Then all day Saturday. All night Saturday night. And went to church and worked on Sunday morning. I don't even know how many nights without sleep that is. That'd be impossible today. It sounds ridiculous as I say it. But what was it that made me willing to endure the exhaustion of painting for five, four nights in a row with no sleep? It was the hope of something that was coming. It was the hope uh, of a time in our own home celebrating the, the birth of our Lord and Savior at Christmas with the family together. There's a much funnier story about when I actually finally got some sleep after that. You should ask Jennifer. I'm sure she would be willing to tell you. What is it that makes us able to endure the difficulties of this life? It's the hope of our future. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that everything we endure, Paul, shipwrecked, uh, beaten, stoned, thrown out of towns, riots. I mean, this guy, read his credentials of how miserable he was, I mean, how miserable the circumstances of his life were in 2 Corinthians. And for all that he went through, which anything most of us have gone through probably pales in comparison, he calls it this light and momentary affliction. Why does he call it light and momentary affliction? Because the hope of heaven, he says, is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. Now think about that. Life is hard. We all know life is hard. But in comparison to the good that's to come, the affliction we undergo here is light compared to the weight of glory. It is momentary in comparison to the eternity of what's to come. 
You want to know how to be of spiritual benefit to one another? Assure one another of the hope of our future. Because if you've believed in Jesus Christ, it is certain, it is coming, it is forever, it is weighty, and it will be perfect. And so we can have hope now. Assure one another of the hope of your future. And secondly, to that, call one another to action in the present. Assure each other of the hope of your future, but call one another to action in the present. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, uh, that could be now, could be the future when Jesus returns, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, that is the return of Christ, to judge the living and the dead, it'll come like a thief in the night. We don't know when it's coming. People will be saying there's peace and security. Uh, I think the chaos of the world right now, where there's little peace and little security, probably means Jesus isn't coming back today, but I don't really know. But there will be peace and security, and all of a sudden, there will be destruction that will come upon them as labor pains come upon a woman and they will not escape but those of us who have believed verse 4 but you are not in darkness brothers for that day to surprise you like a thief we know that day is coming verse 5 for you are all children of the light children of the day we are not of the night or of the darkness so then let us not uh, sleep. Now here he's just talking about sleep, being like sleeping people, oblivious, not at work, not alert, as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. That is to say, our hearts need protection from what's outside, and for a helmet, our heads need protection as well. The hope of salvation, that's what he was just talking about at the end of chapter 4. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The reality is that Jesus is coming and we all ought to live like he is coming soon. Things will seem normal. It will be unexpected. It will come like a thief in the night, but hey, at least we know it's coming. We know he will return. We know our future is secure and we know we will be judged, 2 Corinthians again, for the things done in the body. So how do we live now? How do we encourage one another to live now? Awake and sober. Awake, alert, on lookout. If you are at a forward operating base somewhere near the front lines in the military and you have people on guard duty around the base, you don't want them asleep. You want them awake, alert, on lookout. You also don't want them drunk. You want them sober. You want them to be self-controlled and serious and balanced. There is work to do. There is spiritual good to do inside of the church. What does all of this beg of us? 
I think it asks, it begs these questions of us. Where do you meet with others regularly? Where are you a body joined and fitted together? Do you have a growth group? Do you take advantage of adult Bible classes? Do you meet regularly with others outside of some organized structure to be of spiritual benefit to each other, or do you meet together just to shoot the breeze? Secondly, where do you serve the ministries of the church? When I was interviewing here and I met with groups uh, from ministries, one of the things I did is I made it a point to ask every group, how can I serve your ministry as the new pastor? There was only one answer that every single group communicated, and that was, we need help getting help. There's just not enough people serving. Now, that could mean one of two things. It could mean that we're doing too much, and there's just not enough people to meet all of the ministries of everything that we do, or it could mean that the 80-20 rule applies. What's the 80-20 rule? Everybody in ministry quickly learns the 80-20 rule. That is that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the members of the church. Oh, may that not be true of us. May we be alert and sober and understand that there is work to do. Are you a church consumer? Do you watch church? Church is not even something that can be watched. Church is the body of Christ joined and knit together. It's something we are, not something we observe. Church is not like a restaurant. You don't come through the door, uh, get seated by a host, be presented with a menu, pick what you will consume today, and pay when you're done. The church is a body, joined, serving. And as, uh, as we talk about all this, there's a huge danger in front of us. And that danger is to be so internally focused on serving the church that we never look out into the world and see that there's people who are going to hell, who are destined for wrath, who think that Christianity is about being a good person so that you can get to heaven. If you think Christianity is being a good person, call the office this week, tell Allie, I need to talk to Pastor Logan right away. We will get you on the schedule as fast as possible, or Chris, or Thad, or one of the elders, and we will explain to you that Christianity has nothing to do with being a good person, but understanding that we're not good people and Jesus was good on our behalf. We, 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 we can't be so internally focused, so, so invested in building our, our own little kingdom here and expecting the world to come to us. That's not the way it works. First Thessalonians chapter 1. We even heard Chris pray this this morning. Verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth 
everywhere so that we need not say anything. Sounded forth. The picture I have here for some reason when I hear this word sounded forth is the the old massive foghorns that used to be set up near a sound or near a bay where when when the fog rolled in and ships couldn't see, the, the, the foghorns would sound loudly so that ships would know where the shore was. The world around us is not children of the day, not children of the light. They are living in darkness, as explained in, in chapter 5. The fog has rolled in. They can't see where they're going. To borrow terminology from Jonah, they don't know their right hand from their left. What does that mean, that they don't know that this is their right hand or that's their left? No, it means they don't know which direction to go. And so from us, the word of the Lord must sound. Here is where solid ground is. Here is where there is salvation. Here is where there is safety. Come and see and taste that Jesus Christ is good and believe and have a certain hope of a future. And when you have that certain hope, get to work. Live alert and sober. Let me sum this, summarize this up in four points. Number one, connect with others in the church for mutual spiritual good. Growth groups, youth ministry, personal discipling, adult Bible classes. Be connected to the church. To do otherwise is a death sentence. Number two, regularly remind each other that the future is hopeful, that Jesus is secure, that he is capable of taking us from death to life, and just in case we weren't sure, he has already gone there. No matter what the present looks like, COVID-19, quarantine, poverty, persecution, divorce, the death of a loved one, Our future is good. Number three, regularly give exhortation, courage, and confidence and accountability that results in the service of the church and the sharing of the gospel. Who in your life asks you, when was the last time you told somebody about Jesus who didn't know Jesus? When was the last time you were the friend who asked somebody else, Hey, when was the last time you told somebody about Jesus? We need friends who love us that much. And number four, we gather, we grow, and we go. The whole Old Testament model was come and see. Come and see the temple. Come and see Israel. Come and see the people. Come and see the priesthood. Come and see the sacrifices. And after Jesus was sacrificed under that come and see model as the ultimate lamb who takes away our sins, God sent in Rome, had it leveled, and told his church, you go. The Old Testament model is come and see. The New Testament model of the church is go and tell. We come We grow, we gather, we grow, and we go, and we sound forth the word from us. Whatever it is you're going through today, whatever burden it is you're bearing, there is no promise in Scripture that says simply trust in Jesus and all your pain will be gone and your burdens lifted and life will be easy and your bank account full 
in this life. But that is exactly what he has promised for the next, for eternity. Jesus Christ didn't come to give us more of what death will steal away. He came to give us what death cannot touch. And that's where we must fix our eyes. Father, we thank you for the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. We thank you that despite our sinfulness, you loved us and redeemed us and secured a perfect and glorious and joyful future. We thank you that we can be assured that you can get us there because you have already gone before us in that. That you, you have proven what you offer us. Lord, may the hope of our future always guide our actions in the present. Let us live alert and sober with our eyes firmly fixed on the future and what you have done for us. And let us experience great joy. Lord, may we comfort and encourage and embolden and strengthen one another that your church might be grown, that we might be of spiritual benefit to one another, but that the word might sound forth from us, not only in the valley, but into the world. Lord, keep us from the temptation and the sin of being so inwardly focused as a church that we forget that there are those out there who need the gospel. May we be quick to take it to them, quick to build relationships, quick to get to know people, quick to go where they are, to meet people where they are at and not expect them to come meet us where we are at. And let it be for your glory and for our good and our joy in Jesus Christ. Amen.